Hello and welcome to the Advanced Screening. My name is Justin Corbett and joining me as always is one half of the Disgusting Brothers, my number one boy, it's Tom Kelly. I can't, can you speak up? Can you just take like dad's cock out of your mouth for a bit? <laughs> <laughs> if people haven't watched the first episode of season four of Succession, they're going to be like, this is the roguest intro anyone's, anyone's ever done on a podcast. Um, so we will be talking about uh, the biggest show in the world. Can, can I pull you up just very quickly? Of course. Because you love to apply this tag, the biggest show in the world. <laughs> yeah, I did this about uh, Last of Us when it was on. And I think you may have mentioned this about the Mando at some point as well. And why this is bad for Disney. Um, I don't think it's the biggest show in the world because I don't think it's got the pure viewership numbers of other HBO and other streaming, but I think it is the most talked about show on the internet. I think it's the best yeah. way to describe it. I, I don't think it wins in pure from a pure numbers perspective because I think like people like will watch Yellowstone or... Um, Sorry, this is getting real inside baseball straight away. Um, but the people who watch Yellowstone or The Last of Us more than this. But this definitely generates discussion way more on the internet or how people view this show or how people feel about this show. Um, because people are sort of saying, well, this is the best show of the decade, like since like The Sopranos and shit like that. Yeah, when you look at when you look at numbers, I think House of the Dragon broke all the records for HBO and then Last of Us broke all those records and Succession isn't going to break those records, but if you're on the TV internet, which we definitely are, this is the most talked about show. Um, we won't talk about it straight away in case people haven't watched it yet, so we'll bump that to the second half. Uh, what we're going to do instead is apply our usual mantra of talking about old films and TV and... We're going to talk about tech bros and film and finance and the best in stock market business capitalist movie making. Yeah, There's two pronged reasons for this. First of all, Succession is back and we're celebrating that being back as our favorite show. I think that's a fair fair enough thing. Oh, yeah. And then also it's almost like the the banking crisis where it's almost like, what was it? The Silicon Valley Bank is like gone bang they're gone svb and then like credit swiss and then ubs were made to like here kiss kiss (laughs) we're uh we're breaking news again your banks are failing and um it's time to get your money out and then it's like because i've been following this instagram account called lick lit quiddity where it's just like finance bro memes but it's just like (laughs) it makes my day better um and then the other one is uh the biggest one is a, a Deutsche Bank is um sort of on thin ice is the speculation and that that would I would almost suggest that they might be the next one to go in maybe six or nine months considering Credit Suisse has been on like a rocky ground for the past twelve months or so just, just so for your financial insider bros. <laughs> If you have any money in those banks, get them out. Get them get out. A, get, a, get a bank run. Before before we get to uh, the terror that is banking, uh, I, wanna, I want you to let me cook for one minute. I saw John Wick Chapter 4 over the weekend. Um, there isn't a whole lot to say about it, except that it's just one of the best action films of the last decade, 15, 20 years. Um, there's no story. Don't go in for plot. Uh, I think Keanu Reeves says... 
380 words in the three-hour film, which I did the math comes out lot. to... Uh, it's it's not. It's Well, when you think about it, it's two words per minute of film. Is that Neo numbers? That's way less than Neo. <laughs> That's that's I think I think the only thing that rivals that was um Arnold Schwarzenegger in the first Terminator. Oh. I think Keanu Reeves made uh forty thousand dollars per word for this movie, but it's not about the words. Or Ryan Gosling in a Christopher Reffin uh winding <laughs> Christopher Griffin, yeah, yeah. Drive or only God forgives. <laughs> only God forgives. I don't think he even says words, he just makes sounds. Oh yeah. Um John Wick chapter four uh, literally just goes from set piece to set piece and each one is the best set piece of action in ages um, until the next one. There is one scene that I, I won't spoil, just go watch it, but there is one scene that goes for 10 minutes and it literally had me in the theatre like with my mouth open, just aghast at what I was watching for 10 minutes. This this whole hand-to-hand sort of aspect this wasn't even hand to hand. This was like real filmmaking bro kind of the way they filmed it and the way it's kind of shot and what happens as they shoot it. It's like top down, but that's all I'll say. Okay. It's 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 like God, they call it God's eye view, like as if God was watching what was happening. And I like when you go watch it, you'll see it start to happen. You'll be like, oh, this is what Justin was talking about. And I was literally there like mouth open for 10 minutes, just like, what am I watching? It was the coolest thing. So that's it. That's all I want to say. I can't spoil the movie. There's nothing really to spoil. It's just like set piece after set piece of the best action that's ever been filmed. There's another one that happens around the um, Arc de Triomphe in Paris that's just involving like a lot of uh, hand-to-hand combat, gunfights, and cars. That sounds like Paris now. Oh, yeah. Yes, literally. A lot of hit and runs taking place. <laughs> well, have you seen that where it's almost like the French president wanted to like raise the pension age by like 18 yep. months and Paris, Paris is almost like the best we can do is riot. Yeah. The uh, the garbage cleaners haven't picked up rubbish in about two months. <laughs> the streets are just covered in trash and rioters. Um, all right. Into our uh, tech bro banking collapse finance movies. We'll do a top five of those. Uh, do you want to hit me off with your first in this kind of very niche subgenre? I think because it's succession, we have to bring up the big short. That sort of feels as like the starting point for succession and succession has sort of happened five years later after that film. So it's uh, Adam, Mc- is it Adam McKay who is executive producer of succession has and then Adam McKay is also the same guy who did like Talladega Nights and Anchorman, but then took like the look at 2008 and the banking industry and the guys who actually made money out of it in the sense that they knew what was happening as it happened. So people like Michael Burry, where these are like real life figures and sort of dramatizing, dramatized. Dr- oh, there you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> Fuck, I needed saving. Um, but that these events, but doing it in a really sort of postmodern way, you know, like a postmodern sort of dramedy comedy thing going on there where you would then have the thing going on where like, again, Kendall is in it, uh, Jeremy Strong. Um, 
and there would be dialogue between characters and it's almost like you don't really understand what's going and then they would do this postmodern straight to camera breaking the fourth wall of celebrities where it's like margot robbie in a bathtub or selena gomez at a blackjack table um and anthony bourdain yeah and sort of explaining giving the layman interpretation of what's going on it was really funny and sort of here look behind the curtain this is actually how it works and Anytime a film does that, allowing you in to the joke, it works really successfully, but also it makes you aware of like the really heinous things that were sort of happening within the industry at the time too. And it's it's such a good movie in the sense that like, I don't know about you and I don't know about most people that would watch it, but I've probably watched The Big Short like three or four yeah, times. Yeah, I'd say so and- over the past five years. But every time, you have no idea what they're talking about half the time. Like, you you try to follow, but there's, like, so many things that get said in that film that you kind of barely track in, but it's just written so well and acted so well. And then, like you were saying, all the cameos that, like, break the fourth wall and essentially say to you, yeah, look, we understand that you're not getting half of this, so let's just do a funny gag that tries to explain it. And it does uh, the explainer actually really well in a way that the every person can completely understand and then they get the context. And once you get the context, you get the weight, you get the stakes of what's occurring. And this was pretty much Adam McKay's first kind of drama. Um, he'd done like all the Will Ferrell, like Step Brothers and Anchorman and stuff like that. And even though this is played more like a comedy, like it steps into that drama realm. And then since then he's done the Dick Cheney Vice film and he's done uh, Succession as an EP and you can really tell that I think um, like The Big Short is a drama about the financial crisis, the collapse and the depression that came after it. And yet it was nominated in comedy at yeah. the Golden Globes and all the other awards things. It was nominating comedy, which is right, because if it wasn't for the comedy, then this would be a really grim movie that no one would return to. But because of the way they wrote it and they acted it and the way he shot it, it's like, it's accessible and I can come in and I can laugh about these dirtbags stealing all our money. And it's also the dramatic lead in it is Steve Carell and this is pretty coming hot straight off the office where he's still playing a dramatic lead but he has that still that comic timing within it to sort of carry the drama but also like the drama that's occurring in it. This is like jaw-droppingly shocking and funny at the same time. Yeah. Um All right, I'll go to, uh, I had Big Short as well. Um, Number two, I think, is Moneyball. Yes. uh, Is uh, the Brad Pitt, um, Jonah Hill baseball movie, which is not banking, but it is all about finance because it's all about um, the baseball team in 2002. I think it's the Orioles. No, it's the Oakland A's. It's the Athletics. Oakland A's. Oakland Athletics um, essentially being told you have no money, so figure out a way to build a baseball team with no money. And so Brad Pitt comes in and ropes in Jonah Hill as a statistician, uh, makes him his assistant general manager, and, and he's just like assistant general manager when he's got the like the economics degree from like Yale or Princeton yeah. or something like that. And it, isn't it funny that we again diving back into real life rather than so- something fictional with these finance? Sorry. Yeah, it's, no, no, it's it's super interesting that, um, particularly for this film that is technically a sports film, but the whole point of the film and 
Brad Pitt's character, Billy Bean, as the general manager, is that he actually doesn't watch the games until like the very last game. So you actually, with him there, don't watch much baseball at all in the film. And it's all about the stats that go into making a team. And it doesn't matter if you've got one guy who hits a home run every three goes, if you get three guys that hit a home run every six goes, then you come out on top with more home runs. And it's all about that stat and how to split the finance. Um, it's got a really, really young, fat Chris Pratt um, yeah. in his early days around the Parks and Rec days, which is really good. Uh, I really like this film because of what it actually does with this aspect of sabermetrics, which is was often seen as this dark art sort of like, no, nah, like you, you're actually by analysing the game in this way, is that doing it a disservice because it's all on the vibe and aesthetics. And I think that's a, quite often how we judge all sport um, in a way where it's almost like, yeah, there's stats, but we don't want to pay them that much attention because we like this idea of their aesthetics and we know what looks good and what things that look good are really satisfying. But quite often we overpay for, these, for this aesthetic and it's completely overvalued for something that can just get the job done. Um, and that's where these sort of origins sort of come with, with sabermetrics. And the whole idea of the Oakland A's was this popularization of actually putting this into a professional mythology when it was sort of bandied around for th- 20, 30 years and always dismissed and going back to this sort of conventional thinking. There's, there's better scenes that do explain exactly what I've just done <laughs> in the film, um, uh, does he get on base? He gets on base. He gets on base. He's got an ugly girlfriend. He mustn't have confidence, but he gets on base. <laughs> That's a legit line from the movie. <laughs> and then the classic line where it's almost like, the Yankees are here. Then there's 50 feet of shit. Then there's the rest of the teams. And then there's us. I love the... I, I love... Um, purely, purely for rewatchability is um, just Brad Pitt being as handsome as he is and as confident as he is in a room full of like wizened old veterans who are trying to tell him like, this is the way it's always been done. Why are you trying to change it? And him pointing to uh, nervous Jonah Hill and just being like, tell him. And Jonah Hill has been like, you want me to talk? And then he talks and like, I think one of the guys is like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> and again, the, the, this conventional wisdom just sort of saying, no, like we don't need this stuff. We don't need the economics major. Like we're the scouts. We can do this sort of thing. Um, yeah. Also, we are now two for two for Brad Pitt just going real weird at times. I was, I was just to be like, does Brad Pitt come up again in my list? And he doesn't, which is a shame. But he's done. He's, he's two for two. Top two to Brad Pitt. He's got a weird haircut in both of them as well. Particularly, I, that, I, I really didn't talk like about his it. Billy Bean haircut, and then he's got the real sort of daggy, the bad dag wig yeah. in um in the, the Big, Big Short. Short. I love his role. Just go back to the Big Short in a sec. I really like his role in that, where he's helping the two young guys who yes. just heard, they just heard on the whim that this stuff is happening, that people are going to start shorting the banks, and they're like, "We have no fucking clue how to do this." And they call up Brad Pitt. And he's just like, yeah, I'll help you or whatever. I'll take 5% or good. And he, I think his last scene is he hangs up on them. He's like, congrats, guys, you're billionaires. And then just walks out, <laughs> something like that. Uh, what do you got next? Uh, from a film perspective, hold on. I've just slashed it. Um, 
I had margin call. I don't think it was on your list. It was on mine where that is actually rather than the dramedy, that is the high stakes dramatic retelling of the start of the crash in 2008. Um, that has like Australia's Simon Baker in it. Um, it also has like disgraced Kevin Spacey in it as well. Um, yeah, but- Zachary Quinto. Yes. Uh, before before Spock. Yes, yeah, I didn't, I've never seen this, but um, I remember you mentioning it. So I just kind of Googled it and it was like all star cast and really good. And it's like the most serious of all the finance yes, movies it, and stuff. It is, takes itself infinitely serious. And it also sort of looks at the weight of the situation where the whole idea of the big short, it's also the scale is so enormous that it makes it funny where the scale here is so, it's it's actually, it pulls it all down and makes it macro. And this whole idea that people are toying with the entire economy and it's almost like, well, we just got to make a call. And it's just like these 10 guys in the room sort of making the call on this bank that's going to affect millions of people. Um, a really good study and it's sort of bottled because it's only over that space of the 24 hours of just before the crash as well. Oh, is it? That's yeah. really interesting. So that, there, there's a time to it, and that's where we everybody knows where it's going to, and because it's that short time, it's sort of it's a good summation for the whole event, where you don't need to do everything. We can just have this. Do you have an, one or two more? I think we I think we probably both have this at some point in our list, but Wolf of Wall Street, um, just for the. Pure, every now and then you want to see rich people do nutso shit that like you think if you have money, you might get close to it. Thinking that you're going to spend all this money with like the drug in, drug fueled parties and boat trips in the middle of a storm and stuff. And then they take it further and further with um, certain things that probably are frowned upon and uh, wouldn't be allowed and shouldn't happen. But this is Martin Scorsese and Leo DiCaprio just absolutely cooking. That was the thing I wanted to follow up with, that it's Marty. And it's Marty going all out, pure opulence. And I I feel like that's really well suited to him as a filmmaker, this sort of um, subject matter. And the book originally as well, and the whole idea there where it is this grand sort of scheme and the opulence and arrogance in it. And it ties up really well with the sort of mob movies that he did. Um, things like Goodfellas, Casino, all of, it's hitting well with his sort of whole backstory and filmography that he's done. And I am um, notable for the um, uh, Leo on, on Quaalude scene. Uh, where he uh, thinks that he made it home okay and then finds his car trashed out the front and it flashes back to him like not being able to literally drag himself down to the car, which I think is brilliant. And Jonah, obviously Margot Robbie's breakout role, but um, Jonah Hill, the infamous story that he took the role in that film for $60,000, which is the cheapest you can be paid for someone in his rank as an actor, like he couldn't literally be paid any lower. Otherwise it would be outside union fees and it wouldn't be allowed. So he took the lowest possible rate just because he wanted to work with Martin Scorsese. There you go. Just like Leo, Marty, I will do as little as you need me to do. Just give me the job. (laughs) Um, And it's also, it, it feels like it has longevity within the culture in the sense that it is memeable and shareable sort of snackable content. 
um, that exists on the internet that it, it continues to self-perpetuate in our sort of internet culture. And just the way he the way he filmed it is just like you could anyone could have taken this and shot it kind of like the big short which is unique in its own way but like not necessarily filmed it's more written really well um but marty b marty, we keep saying marty as if he's our That's best mate fine. <laughs> marty scorsese just like the the ultra slow-mo scenes during parties or the big sweeping shots across the um the trading floor that they keep yeah. doing and and the absolute excess of all the traders who are just like bowing at the feet of leonardo dicaprio jordan belfort he's playing um just bowing at his feet and like no expense spared. That room has hundreds and hundreds of people and it is full of extras, just all the going ham. that Marty's playing at. And again, it yeah. goes back to the opulence of the, yeah. the filmmaking of it too. Um, I had a couple films and then you wanted to circle back to maybe a TV series. So I oh, might dude. just go rapid fire just really quick. So I had The Bank, this 2004 Australian film. I think it had Anthony LaPaglia and I think it had the bad... Newton, Matt Newton, I think it was. Had it had Matt Newton, Lapalia, and um, David Wenham. Yes, Far- um, Faramir from Lord of the Rings. Um, good. I actually went and saw it like way back when, when I was like fifteen. <laughs> oh, really? Loser, right? Um, and then <laughs> I had, I think Anchorman can sort of sit within this as well because there's this idea of business and ratings, but like the. Com- the comedic nature of it, like Anchorman, yes, while it was lampoon, lampooning news, that could have been any sort of guy in management in business. Um, I've 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 got one that's going to stretch in the other direction. So happy to put Anchorman in. Um, just just it's just about making money because it's all about staying top of the ratings. So it's about making money. What have you got? Uh, I had the accountant with Ben Affleck. Yeah, that works. Allowed. Uh, the accountant is um, obviously he's a he's an accountant for um, criminals, thieves, gangs, money laundering, um, with high function autism, and just so happened to be raised by a father who trained him to essentially be an assassin. So it has a lot of really really good quick money uh, counting, I suppose accounting, hence the name of the accountant. Um, but also just Ben Affleck like being the size of a house and taking down people, no sweat. So. Yeah. Really, really good um, financial dude bro adjacent action film. No, I pay that. And then the other two I've got are sort of these titans of like American filmmaking and this idea. They're, they're quite totemic, these two films. And they're not necessarily dude bro business, but they speak of American industry. And I've got Scarface and There Will Be Blood. Uh, I haven't seen, I, I don't know, you, you'll probably be shocked. I haven't seen There Will Be Blood. Um, but Scarface, you and I went and saw a 35 mil print screening of Scarface at the Ritz. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it. Me too. That three hours was just (laughs) like, I remember us walking out of that and going sick. Wow. No wonder it's like, like lifted up on this pedestal, but at the same time, what the fuck was that? <laughs> that was like the longest, weirdest, most violent, strangest movie I've ever seen in my life, but also shot really well. Looks really oh, good. Oh, yeah, it looks great. And I really like how people interpret Tony Montana, where they see him as like a legend. But if anything, he he's, talks about all the things that are wrong with America. 
um, but also all the things that are supposed to arrive at the same time. He's a contradiction, but um, but any any man any man can make a living in America. I think is Tony Montana's dream. Yeah. And, you know, but the people people want to chase that dream, and even if that it. dream is he made it. <laughs> And also talk about like memeable, shareable in the culture. It's that that gif where it's almost like they're both on the phone and the the counting of money. Anytime <laughs> that comes up in any sort of context, I just love that. I bet I bet like there's still at least one in every five dorm bros in America has a Scarface poster on their sure. wall. Like hundred percent. They probably haven't even seen the movie. It's just like I gotta put a Scarface, Scarface poster on my wall. Um, what was the other one you said? Uh the other there will be blood. I don't think we need to labor that. It's it's in some ways similar ideas about like anybody can make it in America and these ideas of titans of industry. And then the I've got two TV series, one that we'll talk about with a little bit more, but one I wanted to reference was Billion Season 1. It was fucking great. Really good with Paul Giamatti. Um, and it's sort of gone the opposite way of succession in the sense that it's trying to keep alive and the season will go go on and on even though that the cast has sort of changed over and it's sort of lost its way and it's it's I've stopped watching because it became such an unsatisfying watch regarding plot and what actually happened to these characters that you've invested in where succession is going the other way and sort of saying four and done, we're living on a peak and billions could have gone out on that peak in like season three or season four, but it's now choosing to be like, it's going to be like a seven or eight season show with the cast has pretty much all changed besides one or two. And then they want to also offshoot to these ideas and become this um, Yellowstone sort of universe where you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about, where it's millions <laughs> and trillions. It's so ridiculous. Like they're, they're at a point now where it's like Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis is the other one who yeah. um, is in the first season. Bobby Axelrod. I was only going to watch it because of Damian Lewis because of his role in um, Band of Brothers, which is phenomenal. Um, and, but, and yeah, Homeland. And Homeland, of course. And they're like at a point now where the viewership's surely dropping off. None of the main cast are left. The show is dragging and they're like, you know what this needs? A show about millions and a show about trillions. Like, come on. How many trillionaires are there in the world? Yeah, but don't we want to see that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Do, like, And it all goes down to this idea we need to mine IP for streamable shows that we can sort of build out into a universe that we can drive subs from. Um, the trillions is almost like this is the absolute 1% of the 1%. Um, and then It'll be I, interesting to watch. I like the idea of millions because that's almost like Connor where it's almost like, you know, like, I need 100 mil to stay in the conversation. <laughs> it's almost I like, mean, will you still be rich? It'll be like, yeah, but I'll, I'll just won't. I'll be $100 million rich, poorer. Poorer. Mil- millions is actually kind of interesting because I think the premise is like mid-20s finance bros who just are trying to make it. their first million. But that that is just industry. So I don't know what they're going to do differently. Yeah. Or like how to make it in America. Remember that from like 15 years ago? <laughs> yeah, that's a deep cut. Um, and I, we've danced around at our last one. Might seem a bit weird, but it's uh, one of the best comedies or at least the first three seasons was is um, Arrested Development. Uh, about a super wealthy family 
that lose it all. I mean, as per the narration at the start of the episode, that lost everything in trying to keep it all together. Um, fucking hilarious show. I love this show so much. I return to it. Uh, anytime there's like a, a blank in my schedule, and there's like nothing on. I did that I a put it back weeks on. ago too. Oh, it's so funny. And what the thing... I mean, it's, it's unique. It's very unique in comedies in just to get like a bit filmmakery about it is that um, they shot pretty, they essentially shot it like a doco where they have two roaming cameras in the room and the cast are essentially given the, the permission to act and interact and touch and move however they want. So like, so long as they hit the lines, these two cameras will follow them and they can pick up and put down and touch and do whatever they want within that. And I think that if you go back and watch it, knowing that you see how they kind of interact with things all the time, particularly Job and Tobias for it. Yeah. Job and Tobias, like, I don't, you'll probably think of it straight away, but there's this great skit bit where Job's on his Segway and he's like going up and down a mound and it's like wobbling (laughs) everywhere. And he wasn't, he wasn't meant to go over that. He was meant to go down a footpath, but he saw it and he's like, fuck it, I'll do this. This will be funny. And it's hilarious. I absolutely love it. I did see a TikTok video that a a mate sent to me the other day where it was comparing succession to Arrested Development. And when you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense where the whole idea is, Kendall is uh, Bateman and then Job is uh, Rome and then you've got the, uh, the the brother that's like completely detached and that's Buster, doesn't know what's going on. And then the, the father is almost like this ty- tyrannical figure above the family. It was almost like there's a lot of parallels here. And um, this idea of this dynasty, was- right? Just dynasty and uh, uh, Jason Bateman thinking that he's going to be the one to take over the family and like expecting and expecting and he doesn't and he doesn't. So he's like, fuck this family, I'm out. And then realizes that they're all going to fall apart if he leaves. Um, what, and it all turns out to be... Wasn't the thing about the houses that is like, it was something to do with the Iraq war or Saddam? Yeah, he was um, essentially like building, building houses for Saddam to hide in or something. <laughs> and then... Um, and then the... And then the dad like takes a takes a leave out of Saddam's book and goes hides in a hole in the ground out in their plot of land that they have. And I love that it's just like a model home the whole time. Yes, that's the thing is like the the idea of the model home and the model sort of suburb suburban village that never was completed. So good. Um, I don't have anything else on my list. Did you have anything else? No, that sort of sums it up for me. Do you want, do we want to just take a quick break and then? We'll come back with Succession Season 4, Episode 1. The beginning of the ends. The Munsters. All right, we will see you in a sec. Okay, welcome back. We are going to hit the first episode of the last season of Succession, uh, The Munsters. Uh, Quick question for you right off the top, Tom. Do you think that the kids dropping $10 billion to get back at their dad is a better or worse expenditure of money than Elon Musk dropping $44 billion on Twitter to make some friends? Better because upsetting like my father, I couldn't, my estranged father, I couldn't think of anything better to do with money. <laughs> um, way better because no matter how much money Elon Musk spent on Twitter, I think the only outcome has been that people have found him less funny and are less inclined to like him. So the kids spending 10 bill to get back at Logan Roy, 
great success. So a quick rundown. Uh, you can give us a spill about like the show as a whole, but not a lot actually happens in the first episode until right at the end, but also a lot happens, which is like peak succession. You think nothing's happening and then suddenly a lot's happening. Um, essentially, Logan is two days away from signing off on the deal to sell his news company to up and come us uh, go gojo. Well, I've got some questions about the topography or the geography of that deal, but I'll come back to it. Keep going. <laughs> um, and so he's doing that, and while he's doing that, he wants to snatch up um, all the remaining news companies to pull them into his because he intends to sell off all his excess and keep ATN, which is pretty much a mirror of what Rupert Murdoch did: is um, sell off all his media empire of Fox News, 20th Century Fox, everything, but keep Fox News. So they're pretty much copying Murdoch there. Uh, and the kids are trying to start their own shitty news app called The 100. Uh, and then the second they get word that their dad's going to buy competitive legacy media company from Pierce, uh, they're PGM. like, let's Back PGM. From season two. From season two. They're like, let's fuck him over. Let's just buy it. Uh, and so starts a bidding war, which we'll get into, but um, which they win in the end. But yeah, go ahead. Think about how hard it is to start like new media. We're literally doing it now. Like it's fucking hard, man. Buy legacy. Buy something ready made out of the box. I wanted to. I mean, you've mentioned it, and I wanted to ask you like a quick question. Um, the kids, just absolute dumb shits, right? Like they. I mean, I know it's hard to start media. The, the kids are just dumb, right? Like they. They're not smart. They've. They're very privileged. They're got all the money in the world to start whatever media company they want to start. And if it's successful, great. If it's not, they're not going to lose much capital. But the second that they hear something's going down, they're like, fuck it, let's buy legacy media. Yeah, that's they right. just not, They're just not good, right? Because next-gen Roy's have got a story to tell, apparently, <laughs> through newspapers. <laughs> let's go talk to an old lady about a newspaper. <laughs> Um, what, do you, what did you want to say about the kind of state of the show going into this last uh, season? The thing is, it is such a joy. You can sort of gorge yourself on it. I've already watched it twice in the span of the last three days just because um, Sam fell asleep, just because we watched it late one night. Um, the amount of detail in it is enormous, and it's more than a normal t- television show. And in some cases, it's more than a normal film with the amount of deliberate sort of choices being made both from a writing perspective, from an acting, from a production sense. It is so dense. It's so beautiful. You can rip so many things apart where we're going to talk about it for 20 minutes, but in some ways I could talk about it for the next three months. But just that episode, because of all the choices that are being made, I find it so gorgeous. And in that aspect, and that's we started this podcast because I wanted to talk about this television show. So that's why we're it, here. It was like not even usually uh, you you go in a hyperbole a lot, whether we're at the pub or on a podcast. And I tend to sit back and go, "Oh fuck, you're really loving this." This is one of the this is one of those times where I'm right there with you, like just sitting down. And I think it was like the opening scene is a drone shot over New York with that Nicholas Bratel score playing, and I was just like. Oh yeah, it's back. <laughs> this it's is back. It was. It makes all other prestige TV look shit. Oh, it was so good. Like the just like the the dialogue that is so like cutting and funny, 
like just perfectly so uniquely married to this like Shakespearean drummer with this like score that just is always like booming in the background um, was just it just washes it's just we've said this about a couple of shows but it just washes over you and you sit back and you just like sit there and smile watching like these people terrible people that you like because the writing's so good they've managed to make them relatable that you just like really root for just trading barbs in this and this is actually we were just talking about arrested development filmmaking bro again but they essentially shoot this the way they shot arrested development where With the two cameras just moving. They have, yeah. have two cameras in a room, moving, characters can move what they wherever they want. You hear the actors speak a lot about the fact that they have to act as if they're in a play because they've been told that you never know when the camera's going to be on you. So that's why you get so many quick one-liners or lines said off, off camera. It's just a lot of like top of their line actors just riffing in a room together and the camera just following them wherever they are. I think I, I really wish I'd written it down, but there's one point in this episode where Roman says something off camera and it was one of the funniest lines of the episode, but he's not even on camera. I think it's something, I think it might've even been around the the Kendall drug using thing where, no, no, it was when um, Kendall's talking about his attributes, Shiv's attributes and Roman's attributes. And he's like, and Roman's just the, the fuck I do whatever the fuck he wants, um, killer. And Roman's just off camera. He's just like, thanks, fuck. Yeah, whatever, cool. Or something like that. It's just <laughs> like, yeah, thanks, fuck you. Or something like that. It's so good. I actually read a piece about that where they the ad lib was so good and they didn't keep it in the cut. But the whole idea is they're out talking about the deal at um, Nan Pierce's house. And the whole idea is he's... Roman's almost like, why don't we ask cousin Greg what, what he thinks of the deal? And they're almost like, what are you talking about? And the camera swivels to this statue in the garden that looks like this just massive fucking dork. It's this Giacometti Italian 1940 sculpture of this really awkward, tall, thin <laughs> man. And it's just almost like, yeah, fucking cousin Greg, man. And it's so <laughs> quick, but it didn't, it doesn't make the cut, but it must be such a joy to work on this sort of production. Oh, it's it. It looks like it'd be so much fun, and you kind of get the the back and forth about um like just the way they work. And I was reading one thing where they're all like really really good mates, and they hang out and they throw barbs. And then um the number one boy, Kendall Roy, played by Jeremy Strong, is like really method and really hard to hang out with, but and like hates being a part of it. He's always Kendall, so no one can ever hang out with him. But when he's in the room, he just like he kind of anchors it, doesn't he? Like the, when, when he walks into that room at the start and he's like, Romy, Romy, let's make some money. And you wouldn't, and you wouldn't know, but just the way he bounces off everyone else is so good. I had a, um, I had a like stepping through bits and pieces, but Logan's little depresso spiral at his, oh, um, wow. at his, at his birthday party. What, what at do you think? Is, and then at the diner, what do you, what do you think's going on? Do you think he kind of has realized like he's alienated his kids and as much as they disappointed him, he loved those little fucking people being around him and talking shit and stuff. Like why is he so, so depressed throughout most of this episode? He's bored. And I think it goes back to the finale of last season where he's there with Magnuson in like Lake Como and the whole bit is Magnuson is almost like lunch or coffee and he's almost like none of that, none of that just this 
because this and, is yeah, the most he, exciting thing. Yeah, he literally and says everything to him, else is boring. He says, yeah, every everything else is boring, isn't it? And um, Matson's like, it really fucking is, isn't it? And it's like, yeah, that's... And now that he's like done the deal, he's going to sell off most of his company, he'll be running news, he won't have his kids around, who he gets at least a little enjoyment out. There's nothing else for him. He's bored shitless. I thought the most pertinent, like I know we'll talk the diner scene is this almost like Shakespearean sort of like, what do we, where do we go when we die? And then what are people and things like that? I thought the most pertinent scene was like when they're all sitting in the room and Nan Pierce has got them on hold and he's almost like, roast me, somebody make a joke and nobody can do it. Uh, outside Cousin Greg and then he's got the best comeback for Cousin Greg and somebody say, who wants to smell Cousin Greg's finger? A, a buck if you can guess. <laughs> I like, and Cousin Greg with the balls, like everyone else around him is like, oh, I don't want to do a joke. I don't want to do a joke. And Cousin Greg's like, where are your kids, Uncle Uncle Logan? Where are your kids? <laughs> it was like, where's your grandfather sucking cock in the county fair? <laughs> <laughs> um, and... What else do we have? Uh, so another thing I really liked, like we'll kind of hit some points and then we'll go to the big ones like the diner scene. But is this, I felt like this was the first episode where these insanely rich people who never have to worry about money and it might be, you tell me, it might be a sign of things that are going to come. It was the first time that they ever actually discussed how much money is worth to them. So yeah. we've got we've got the really funny scene of Connor Roy talking about needing to drop another hundred million dollars, um, on his, polit- on his failed political campaign. Um, the great line from Greg, where they're like, we're going to get squeezed out. And he's like, from 1%, can you go any lower than 1%? Decimals. <laughs> it goes to decimals. Um, and Connor's like, I need to drop a hundred million. And his soon to be wife was like, yeah, but you'll still be rich. And he says, yeah, but not a hundred. I'll be like a hundred million dollars poorer. And then, the, the next the next one is Roman talking about nine point five billion on PGM and they're like fuck it let's go to ten it's a nice round number he's like yeah but five hundred million dollars like think what we could spend on that sushi, sushi. and jet skis <laughs> we could buy some fucking sushi we could get some jet skis I feel like it's the first time they've ever actually talked about money well in season two do you know how much they were trying to buy PGM for was twenty five billion in in season two yes. Ah, interesting. Because so, I was so, I was about to say, was PGM overvalued at ten bill? Yes, absolutely. It was overvalued at twenty five. But the whole idea is, I think the business is cratering. Um, can I just because we I wanted to talk about the geography of the deal. I want to talk about the geography of the election. Is Connor running as an <laughs> independent third candidate, considering it's supposed to be like we're a month away from election day and both the Republican Democrats have their candidates? What is Connor running as a third candidate spoiler? Uh, Connor is um, Marianne Williamson, I think, to go back to uh, which the Joe Biden campaign. Oh, the- that's even a deep cut for, even for me. <laughs> The uh, she was the um spiritual loopy um feel feel my energy and you'll trust me candidate um independent candidate that everyone was worried was going to take a lot of um the woo woo crowd away from Joe Biden but then she dropped out but that's definitely what Connor is he's independent third party. There was I think in the two thousand election there was a spoiler um I can't remember the name where it sort of it took votes off the Dems and that sort of hurt. Al Gore, I can't remember the candidate off the top of my, off the top of my head. Um, but the, the, it, 
I was just trying to understand that because I was trying to understand the deal. I think you've done a good job of there explaining where it mimics what's happening with uh, the Fox sort of merger and sale and stuff like that, where he's just keeping his newspaper. He's keeping the news division. He's keeping newspapers and cable and stuff like that. And he's ditching all of the entertainment because the entertainment side is the actual thing that's actually profitable. And we've also seen that because Fox tried to merge back their, they've, it's a bit complicated to explain, but the holiday Fox television, the entertainment division that didn't get sold to Disney is siloed away separately from Fox news and the, the actual, the news division. He tried to bring them back together in the past month, and they're like the news, uh, the entertainment division is like, no, we don't want to be merged with the news division. Who could be liable to like Dominion for like a yeah. billion dollars in defamation? Do not get us anywhere near Fox News and Tucker Carlson, pretty please. Like, I don't want to be near those bank accounts, please. I don't want to be <laughs> anywhere near a class action lawsuit on defamation. <laughs> um what was what was you had some geography issues what was the um i think it was mainly the deal trying to figure out what is uh i think i had it if i can get it up like what is the actual geography of the deal it's never really spelled out i think it's insinuated and i think you've you've done a pretty good explanation of that there the one thing i've got about this deal though is is because they've logan's been fucked over could he then pull the rug out of this deal? I don't think so, but just because I've seen the what's coming up later in the season in the trailer, um, I don't think so, but it does leave it open for Logan to just be almost like, well, I'm going to stuff the deal. And now all you've, all of a sudden you're swinging, a, you're a swinging dick in the wind with 10 billion <laughs> owed to Pierce and you're not yeah. getting 10 billion off me. Yeah. So the, the, um, the idea is that, he sells pretty much everything except news to Gojo, which is um, Alexander Skarsgård's company from season three. Uh, and if he does that, then the kids get to cash in their checks and make like two billion each. Yeah. So they'll have they'll have six billion, and then they'll just need to get four billion and just get four, just get four billion. I think it was Petro Dollars, uh, Petro Dollar Consortium, because Roman said they can stick their um, human rights record up their up their ass or something like that. When like Shiv was having this nervous breakdown because Tom is dating like a Pierce, <laughs> um, and then so yeah, I mean we could literally see yeah, like you said, I don't think it'll happen, but Logan could tank the deal. But he also is probably aware that these kids are fucked because they need to get another six billion or four billion together. But I think they're good because their banker financial advisor T, a new <laughs> character for the season, is on the phone. Um, uh, one of the great lines was, um, "Do you think it's worth that much?" And T said, "Well, it's worth whatever the highest bidder will pay." <laughs> and Roman just responds like, "Thanks so much, man. I'm glad we're paying you a hundred million for that hard Harvard ev- education." I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed by your brilliance, T. <laughs> um, I I have to make this point. So, what is your thought on Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker? I, I think that's what we're trying to achieve with <laughs> the advanced screening. Am, is, am I wrong? It is an independent bespoke information hub with the hundred greatest top writers, experts, and minds in every field from Israel, Palestine to AI to Michelin restaurants. It's a one-stop info shop with high calorie info snacks. My God, (laughs) it's such gibberish and rubbish. And it's exactly what you'd expect from Kendall. Just absolute like 
like or everything he just said is just what Substack is. Like I don't know what, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm going to use high calorie info snacks for my year twelve classes when I'm actually talking. This is a high calorie <laughs> info snack that what you're getting right here. <laughs> um so did you have a couple more things you want to hit or do you want to go into some power rankings and some uh, stock markets? Let's do stock because I've got one or two. Well, I think I've already sort of got... No, you, let's go stock and you fire away. So um, we'll do this for every succession episode. Stocks are rising and stocks are falling. So if you had to jump in and buy something because the stocks are on their way up, what would you buy from this episode? Uh, my rising stock is feigned ignorance. Um, on the behalf of Nan Pierce doing the absolute baller job. She's been in this business for so long and yet here she is bidding the father and the kids against each other and in the middle she's like, oh, I like none of this. Bidding wars, I don't like this. First someone says eight, then they say nine. What's going on? I don't like it. To which Roman replies, what comes after nine? Nine B. (laughs) Nine B. So I'm buying stock in feigned ignorance because Nan Pierce pretending she doesn't know how bidding wars works is just delightful from Nan Pierce. I like how it acted as as a satire that left wing, right wing, it doesn't matter. They just want the money. Um, the one, the thing I'm buying is Matthew McFadden. Was it McFadden or it doesn't fucking matter, but it's the guy who plays Tom. He is on another level in this, in with this performance. I think my favorite joke of the year so far is a physical comedy one where, um, Nicholas Braun, uh, no, is, am I saying the right one? Yeah. yeah Nicholas Braun is cousin Greg. Cousin Greg comes up from behind him at at um, Logan's birthday party and is going to say, the disgusting brothers. And Tom's face just <laughs> like cringes and just his whole body just is like, oh, fuck. Greg. What have I done? But like what he does in those two seconds, I could not stop laughing. Just like the contempt that he held Greg for those two or three seconds. But also like later in the episode, they are the best combo. Can we get like the Tom and Greg sitcom sort of post this season, which is them riding off into the distance, please. Uh, the, the thing about cousin Greg and Tom and part of like why Tom's uh, Matthew McFadden rising stock is such a good buy is because he does so much in this episode, him and cousin Greg, cousin Greg has a stupid storyline. The only thing that he's doing in this episode is bringing some nafty girlfriend to the party. Tom has like this really, really funny bits and pieces with Greg, but then he's like in the room with Logan making deals and then has that really poignant moment with Shiv at the end of the episode where they're kind of like, look, we gave our wedding a shot. This is it. The, the beats that he goes through kind of feels like this is going to be a Tom season, at least early on. Like the, there's been talk if you go back, like season one was a Kendall, season two was a Shiv, season three was a Roman. Not completely because they're all in it, but I feel like Tom, Matthew McFadden, the actor, is going to own this season just based off that first episode. It also speaks of what he's been able to do with this character that in season one, he was a punchline where I remember like Roman like destroyed him at a dinner party where he just took the piss out of him. It was like, where do you buy your suits? Like, what, why do you talk like that? You're like, so like Midwestern, you like, you, you're trying to play as a billionaire, but like, you'll never will be, you're an impersonator. And because of what he's done with that character over the 
spin of like three seasons. Tom is absolutely fundamental. And I like the suaveness that he left the restaurant and the camera followed him with that. And it just spoke of like Tom is the master of his domain at the moment, even though by the end it's sort of we've gone through all the comedy of the show and we're left with what a relationship looks like when it dies and it's utterly devastating what's happening there between um, Shiv and Tom and what um, the actors are doing there. It's it's pretty wild that they've like taken it to that point so early in the season as well. Like it was like, how's this going to play out? How are they going to butt heads throughout the season? Um, he gets being told by Logan, like, call your wife, call your wife. Um, and then they've, at the end of the first episode, they're like, yep, um, this is this is kind of it. We've we've done it. And I liked how like Shiv used their divorce as a power play. The first time she actually announced it was during a negotiation with Nan Pierce as well. It's like cold blooded. I actually have to talk about one thing: is like bad dog parents. Like I'm coming. From, you you grew up with a dog. I currently have a dog, and it's almost like you've come in and Paul Mondale is in a really dark room in the pen while Tom is fucking at home. What the fuck, man? Do you hate your dog? Mondale, uh, like Tom, I feel like Tom probably gave him a pat and then, uh, went to bed. Whereas Shiv just comes home. Here's the dog whining and like looks at him, says hi, Mondale and walks away. So we've got two, two people here who are terrible dog parents and also they name <laughs> their dog Mondale. So, Terrible dog um, parents anyway. Where did you want to go to next? Uh, are we at selling now, I think? Yeah, what what stocks are you like, the market's falling, get out of this stock while you can. Uh, do you want to go first on this one? Well, I had the geography of the deal. We sort of unpacked that. And I also then had the 100, but the whole idea of um, new media, we're selling new media. Even though it's almost like, is that where the world is going? The new media, legacy media still has a grip. And not saying that it's a strong grip, but they are still relevant. So I would sort of question this ideas of new media and the hundred and substack. It's almost like, well, like how often can you reinvent the wheel with new media? And it's almost <laughs> like I like this the, the commentary that where they had. It's almost like this is this looks like ironic, not iconic. <laughs> I um, I it's so high. Like the hundred. I love that they're just sitting there looking at the dumbest, like images and stuff and they're just like this this will be the hundred because we're gonna have the hundred best writers in the field just i would like, love to work this? on the graphic design for the logo for the hundred i would really like <laughs> to sit down actually what's the like the roman numeral for hundred uh x or c is it fuck you're asking you're asking tough i think it's right c now. wouldn't c like the logo like the hundred and having like the roman numeral c be sort of cool i don't know you're really pulling out your, your art major right now. Yeah, I am. <laughs> um, I am selling stock in having sex with your geriatric boss. Um, Kerry. Yeah, it's a friend assistant slash adv- uh, uh, friend assistant advisor. <laughs> advisor. Uh, Kerry, the once was assistant, still assistant, but now sexual partner to the very old and decaying Logan. You're pretty um, much advising don't shit where you eat. Don't shit where you eat. I'm I'm advising on the grounds of Roman's line to Kerry, which is, um, I don't know, we think we know him better, but we're not the ones sucking his big uh, pepperoni nipples or whatever he says. Oh, no, no, uh, the, the omelette nipples. Omelette nipples. We know him pretty well. I mean, we've never licked his big omelette nipples, but you know. 
Um, so selling stock on Kerry having sex with her geriatric boss because she's really come to the fore last season in this season, but I think that's uh, not going to end well at some point. I'll tell you who's buying though, Marsha and Milan. <laughs> yeah, she's shopping in Milan forever. forever. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, well, a couple of others just... Just really funny quotes before we hit the um, the power rankings, the best of. Um, Greg talking about the date that he brought. He describes her as crunchy peanut butter. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, she's great, man. She's like crunchy peanut butter. <laughs> that's, such a, that's such a great thing to say. I liked her just almost like congrats on the, on the sale. Ka-ching. Ka-ching, as if as if Logan needs that money. Um, and when then Greg's they... saying, I don't want to know what happens in Guantanamo. That's literally what I was just about to say. <laughs> the the addition to the Guantanamo line, this is when um, Carl, uh, not Carl, the uh, security guard has to escort this lady out. And Greg says, I don't want to see what happens in Guantanamo. So you go do your ways and um, God be willing. <laughs> Like, what is it? God be willing. Um, and then you've said it earlier in the episode, but Greg says we are rummaged around his, rummaged around in each other's pants and Tom replies, did you rummage to fruition? fruition? Brilliant stuff. The This show is probably one of the most quotable shows on TV right now. Um, did you want to hit your power rankings? Yeah, so I'm just going to... I'll go through this pretty quick and then we can sort of compare where we're at. So at number one, I actually had Roman. Roman's the grown-up where he was almost like, do we actually want to ditch the hundred? I actually want to do this properly. And now the two are almost like, no, new and like bright and shiny legacy media, let's buy. And he's almost like, well, sort of those sort of things. And the way he played the negotiations with Nan, I liked like the, like the nine B and let's go talk to an old lady about a newspaper sort of stuff. I thought he won the day for just the lines, but it showed him as a grown up. He's, he's, he's strike back against the empire, so to speak, where the other two have, where this is Roman's first sort of striking down of Logan in some ways. Um, yeah. I had, I had Roman at number one as well, just before you keep going, just be, he, when you put him in a room with Kendall, who was meant to be the prodigal son and Shiv, who was meant to be this fantastic political operator and also once promised the business, you just see how much better Roman is at this than the two of them. And that if he wasn't the youngest son who got beat around by Logan, if Logan could only see that he's actually like the best and smartest and got the best head for this. He also really loves see Logan it. too. And he loves his dad. Like if he had been given the chance, he would have been the one to take over um, but he never was. And you just you just see it in these dynamics when he's with the siblings talking about business. He's actually the one that knows the most about it, but keeps getting pushed to the side and keeps getting bullied. Ken just thinks he... Ken thinks he's mastered social media because he's done good tweet, bad tweet. <laughs> Roast me. What's, what's, the, what's the bad tweets? Isn't it, like, isn't it funny that Ken and also Logan both said, like, roast me, please? Yeah, they're big sad people who only get off of um, like negativity. They just need they they don't care how they're talked about so long as they're talked about. Um, number two slot, I had Greg. He had a great time. He rummaged to fruition. <laughs> that's 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 my note. That's all I got. He had a great time. 
and no matter what seems to happen with Greg, like I, I love that he told Logan about fooling around in his bedroom and he's like, I told him and he told me to leave, but he also seemed to smile a little bit. So I see that as a win for Greg. Oh, absolutely. Like Logan would have thought that's disgusting, but actually like, I like you, but I see myself in you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big time. <laughs> Can I just deviate? Just re- Oh, well, no, we'll come to the power rankings. Keep going. Sorry. I've got some analysis that I want to go into. <laughs> Um, uh, the, probably the last, the last power ranking would be, um, I don't know if we'll see him again, but Nan Pierce and her family, um, their, their company was definitely worth like five bill. I think Logan knew it. That's why he like, yeah, Logan maxed out on six and yet she just kind of, again, feigned ignorance. That's why the stocks were rising and she gets a power ranking because her little bit of like, I don't like people, the numbers, what comes after 9 billion? And that kind of, I think that got in their head where Shiv and Kendall are just like, fuck it, give them 10 billion, make it a round number. And she walks out with probably four extra billion than she was going to get. So Nan Pierce gets a power ranking. And also her whole family where they're just like the most happy, lovey people and they're smiling and they're sitting in that lounge room with the sun coming in. They're, they're on a vineyard drinking wine. She's like, Oh, this is too fancy for my palate. I prefer my <laughs> I prefer my wine vinegary or some shit. It's like, come on, this is all just bullshit. Like men. Just like a man. Uh, at three, I've got Ken where he walks into the room eating sunflower seeds and, and misquoting Mao. I thought that was an all timer. Um, following that, I've got uh, Logan thinking about markets and the afterlife in a diner. Very similar in the way that Tom had dinner with Greg in a diner um, in season three and was talking about like prison and stuff like that. I like the, these reoccurring motifs. And then the last one um, at bottom of the table, I've actually got Tom and Shiv where whatever's happening, like the end of a relationship in this matter and the end of a marriage, it's a bummer, man, for everybody. Big bummer. Especially Mondale. <laughs> so Tom, Tom, I think is a super interesting place to like kind of think about what's going to happen next in the sense that Tom lost this episode in the sense that he lost them the Pierce deal because he caught up Shiv about his date date with Naomi. He, because of that and whether anyone finds that out, it doesn't look like they will, but he lost Logan the Pierce deal because he gave Shiv the hint. And then he doesn't win the deal while he's on the phone in the room. And then he has that downer moment with his now soon to be ex-wife in bed. So Tom had a real bad episode, but I also think the fact that he gets called into the room and the fact that he's possibly now free of Shiv could mean that he's going to be like free to just run shit and be Logan's secondhand person. So I think he could be on the up. I thought that too, but then the second time I watched it, I'll actually counter that. Lo- Tom's only value to Logan is a bridge to Shiv. He is, is absolutely useless outside of that to Logan. Logan does not care. And it's almost like his most valuable asset is that he has a relationship and that's it. And that's why Logan, when he said, is like, if we're good, we're good. And it's almost like, I think that had the connotation of like, you're only useful as a surrogate for my daughter and that's about it. Which is tragic for Tom because he's just trying to rise. And I actually felt like he's actually meeting where he wants to be. He was running that room in in a lot of ways. He was the man on the phone. And but think about who he was on the phone to. He was on the phone to Shiv. 
He was on the phone to Shiv the whole time. Yeah, interesting. I, I kind of pictured him on the upbeam free of Shiv, but now that you've mentioned it, Logan using him to constantly get in touch with Shiv could be problematic for him if he can't do that w- anymore. Either way, I'm all in season tickets on Tom, whatever he's doing. I want to see where that's going. And I think that's the most interesting sort of ramifications to play out because I don't really care who wins because whoever wins, they all lose anyway. It's not about winning. Uh, yeah, it, it could like, if the kids take over, if they go big, like it's, it'll be interesting because I don't think they ever will, but also if they just become their dad, have they lost? So that's interesting. There is a clue in the title of the show. There will be some sort of succession. We don't know what that's going to be, but I think um, that's what sort of Jesse Armstrong has sort of promised, that we will have a resolution of that. But how we get there, we don't know. I don't particularly care who wins, but it's how we get there with Tom and stuff like that and Roman, where what will actually show up as their entire character arcs from season one to four, which I think will be really fascinating. Um, did you have any sort of final thoughts or I think we've, we've quoted everything. We've definitely quoted everything. Um, no, no final thoughts. We, we covered everything off. Um, big first pod for the first episode of the final season. I am very, very excited to see where it goes and keep covering it with you. So succession season four, see episode one wrapped. Can't wait for more. I'll just, just let it wash over us. All right, good talking to you. We will be back next week with more succession and hopefully we'll figure out something to bridge into it at the start. Kendall out.